Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambi peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go! Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Science, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I am your familiar stranger today, Simon Theobald, together with my fellow familiar strangers, Julia Brown, Jody Lee Trembath, and Matthew Fong. Hello. Our podcast executive producer who's joining us here today. Matt is doing a Master of Science Communications here at the ANU and he's a background in biology and psychology. Welcome, Matt. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. So, Julia, what are you thinking about this week? This week I've been thinking about the relationship between loneliness and health. So there's a lot of research about how loneliness is as bad for your physical health as it is your so-called mental health. Some people say it's as bad as smoking, in fact, in terms of the effect that it can have on one's physiology. And I became interested in this topic when I was working at the Department of Health and I was looking at social determinants of health and different socioeconomic gradients, like looking at different conditions and gradients around those. And it was really interesting to me how loneliness was one condition, we'll call it, that didn't follow a socioeconomic gradient. So Mm. it's something that everyone is vulnerable to, right? And whether or not it is the same across cultures is very much up for debate, but it is clear that in our modern life in Western culture, it is becoming more of a problem. And I was listening to a podcast last night on All in the Mind. I love that podcast. And yeah, it's a it's a good one. And the topic was loneliness and health. And at the end, the host, Lynn Malcolm, was asking the person she was interviewing whether anything can actually be done about loneliness and health. And they were saying that what might make a big impact is simple acts of kindness in everyday life that a lot of us don't have time for because we're so you know busy and caught up in things. A lot mm. of the time that we might not realise that a simple interaction we have with our neighbour might be the only interaction they have all week. My question is, what do you guys think we can do about it? Is it about these small acts of everyday exchange that can make a big difference? Hmm. Yeah, look, I think it's a really critical issue in, I mean, in Australia, definitely, where we have quite disparate families. We're often geographically separated from the people that we're raised by and potentially move away from our friends when we finish school or finish university. People in Australia particularly tend to move a lot. It's not uncommon to go and do a gap year overseas and then stay for an extended period of time. So I think that as a culture, and that's a very broad and homogenising term right there, but Australia is quite good at being separated from the people that they care about. But I think that leads to a lot of loneliness in society. And I think the only way really to deal with that at a broader societal level is to encourage that kind of 
temporary or makeshift family and to really encourage fictive kinship, right, which is where you decide who your kin, who your family are going to be and you develop relationships to the level of family. And if that's encouraged at a societal level, I think it gets easier and it relieves that burden of loneliness. But how do you encourage that at a societal level? I'm not even sure. Especially when fictive kin could extend to hallucinatory kin, like in the case of some of my participants with schizophrenia who felt the presence of family members that they couldn't share with others. So it's interesting Mm. because that was pathologised, right? Did they feel less lonely? Yeah, for sure. It was a protective factor. Mm. But the idea of loneliness is kind of like not just physically being alone, but maybe having a lack of connection in general. So I think this old quote, it's like, you can feel lonely in a crowded room. Everyone, Mm. I think everyone in this room has experienced that sort of feeling. So maybe it's not so much as how do we combat, you know, loneliness in air quotes, but how do we increase our connection with the people around us? And I think you mentioned that earlier in terms of it's a fictive kinship, Mm. is that what it's called? Yeah. Mm. Maybe that's a way of developing connections that actually will make you feel less lonely rather than being like, I'm going to go to this place and hang out with people I don't know. Maybe creating that connection with people you do know already or with new people might be a way to combat that loneliness. What I would say is that one of the things I definitely noticed about doing my field work was that people were spent a lot more time in each other's company and therefore like families were much more kind of intimate and there was a lot less time spent just doing things by yourself. You basically always went out with someone. It was kind of unusual to just, I mean, you went to work on your own, right? But otherwise people were quite social and I don't know, maybe that requires a total renegotiation of what we understand to be the foundations of Western society. So nothing much then? Nothing much, just something simple like that. We'll get onto that tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, sweet. Sorry, unfortunately, that's all we have time for. We have to keep moving on. So, Matthew, what are you thinking about this week? Well, this week, I've been thinking a lot about positionality, especially in my own sort of field of study. So, I've recently started studying science communication, and they do emphasize a lot, especially in one of my courses, understanding your own position in space and your cultural biases and etc. And as far as I understand it, positionality is being aware of your social context how you are as a person, etc., in that sort of vein. So understanding who you are and why you're like that. I think my big question is, what were your positionality in terms of your research? That's what I found really interesting. And I really haven't had a chance to sit down and ask this question to you guys. So Mm, what were your positionalities? Well, the first thing I would add is that it's about the power that you bring to a space as well, which is really important in terms of working out what your position is in relation to other people. Mm -hmm. In my research, I would say that it depended who I was with, but I had both clinical caregivers and patients in my study. And when I was in the company of either the dynamic and the power dynamic was obviously quite different. But there is an element of understanding power dynamics in terms of who you are and what privilege you bring to your study and your observations and your yeah your observations. Yes, and how that could colour the interactions that you're having with people and whether or not people can be as natural with you as they might be in everyday life. Right, okay. So that was certainly something that I was constantly aware of. Right. And I think it took a long time for people to feel like an equal with me. Hmm. And maybe they never did. I don't know. But I know that in the beginning, it was harder to convince people that, you know, I wasn't part of their treatment team. And I was here to privilege their stories 
above their medical records. Right. Okay. My positionality was really complicated because I felt many things simultaneously and I was simultaneously different things to different people. The most obvious thing is I went with my partner and she, in an Islamic society, she gave me entrance to women's worlds, I think, that I wouldn't otherwise have had any opportunity to access. Uh, and so a lot of time we did a whole bunch of things, like we did babysitting, which I just think as if I had been a single man, it would have completely changed my experiences. Right. With regards to power, I understand that coming in, I was a white foreigner and that carried with it a lot of cachet, a lot of social you know, capital. And people definitely wanted to spend time with me just by virtue of being white and foreign and coming from a Western country. But it also, I think, put me at the end of what is a highly disciplinary state and Iranian society intimately interwoven with and managed by the processes of Islamic governance. And I thought, again, as a white Westerner, I was prototypically, in some ways, the enemy, in inverted commas, as much as the Iranian government and the Iranian people kind of distinguished between governments and individuals, there was still that sense that I was, you know, maybe I was a spy, maybe I was some kind of foreign agent. So in that sense, I was afraid of a punitive state, right. but I think I was seen as embodying like a whole host of exoticisms and liberalisms and feelings mm. about the outside world that the average Iranian didn't have much access to. Um, so it, it made for yeah, a fairly complicated positional situation that I really haven't, yeah, I haven't solved. Mm. I haven't solved quite how I feel about where I sit in my own field work. Right. Despite having mm. almost finished my PhD. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you'll never know. Maybe you'll never know, yeah. What about you, Jody? Well, so I'm glad you said the word embodied because I think that's where I'd like to think about my positionality. So as a, a researcher of researchers, an academic of academics, I guess I was a fairly quintessential insider ethnographer although I don't entirely believe in the idea. Like Simon, I think I was different things to different people at different times. Right. Sometimes I was an insider, sometimes I was an outsider, and how I felt about that changed depending on the context as well. But I think also in terms of my positionality, I am a short, uh, fairly soft-looking woman and I think that that physicality had a real impact on the way that my fieldwork played out. I think if I had been tall, if I had been striking looking, if I had more of a strident personality, then people would have responded to me very differently. As it was, I think I come across as very non-threatening. And I think that, I mean, in some contexts, that's a problem because it's easier for people to take advantage of somebody they think they can take advantage of. In other contexts, it's useful because it means that people are more likely to trust you more quickly, which is a really big responsibility because if people are going to trust you with things that they wouldn't trust somebody else with, then you need to really honour the things that they trust you with. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for. Ah. Jody. Yes. What are you thinking about this week? Well, I have been wondering what a person is. Wow. So that, yeah, wow. nothing, nothing too big. So uh, most people probably know that Trump was quoted as, it, it seemed like he was saying something about immigrants to America as these are not people, they are animals. It turns out that he was actually talking about particular gang members. Okay, so given either of those contexts, whether he had said it about these gang members or immigrants more generally or people he didn't like, which wouldn't surprise me anyway, and that's why when he said it, everybody was like, yep, that sounds like Trump. 
Whatever he said, what I want to know is how do we define as a general society, how do we define what a person is? So take, for example, is Superman a person? So if we look at the Superman franchise, he's actually an alien, but he's taken human form and he is in love with a human. And so we have this human slash alien relationship going on, but are they both people in that context? I guess we can look also at the way that people talk about people. People talk about their pets and make the kind of joke that, you know, well, pets are people too. That's my question for you guys. Like what are the boundaries around what a person is? Is a person who we only know online? Is that a person to us? Mm. Are they only a person in their fleshy form or are they a person that extends into their mobile phone or into their Facebook profile? What are the boundaries around a person? It's it's making me think of some movie, I think it's called She. Yes. Or Her. Her? Yeah. She, yeah. And it's got like the... Scarlett Johansson, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's got Joaquin Phoenix. Yes. Yes. He is in love with... Her. Her, who is an operating system, really. Mm. Is she a person? Yeah. Well, I think a person is someone, someone, I use that very specifically, Mm. someone that is an actor in its own space. So they can affect change and movement. They can do things. Is a storm a person? Storm Mm. can affect change. Well, why do we have, why do we name cyclones and storms? Good one. Hey, what do you guys think? One of the things I think about when I think about the limits of personhood is people with profound disabilities. And I often wonder the degree to which society treats them as persons because there are a lot of people out there who for whatever medical reason unable to communicate with us or able to communicate in a very limited manner and a lot of the things that we understand to be human is comes down to this kind of process of communication do we consider people to uh, have significant disabilities to be human in the same sense we consider people who don't have such disabilities are they human as well that's something i i feel like we probably could work on as a society i feel like it's something we don't do to the best of our ability Hmm. and i think you've really brought to the surface the fact that how we construe someone as having personhood ultimately comes down to the perspective of others others yes so well just thinking about like what matt was saying and what you're saying with people with disabilities it's not so much about whether or not they are actors or they have agency. It's about the extent to which we perceive them to, which counts anyway. Right. So it's mm-hmm. not so much about them, it's about the perspective of us. us. Mm. Yes. So if societally we decide that these people in these gangs are not people, then well, therefore I just they're not people? Well, I don't think that society ever decides... Anything that, as a whole. Yeah, yeah. I think it always Sometimes just comes down to... I mean, law can... I hate to use a painful example, but, I mean, terra nullius, right? Like, when James Cook first arrived in Australia, he was like, oh, well, these Aboriginal people are not actually people, so therefore we don't have to make a treaty with them, so this land is not inhabited because there's no people on it. And that went into law and... The way people are constituted through policy and law definitely counts for something. But I just mean in terms of like that concept of personhood. Mm. I think it it does come down to how How people people, in their social space perceive them. Mm. 
Unfortunately, we don't have time to get into this can of worms. <sighs> Sorry, right. team. Well, that leaves me, yes. uh, the final speaker, to speak about something. And I'm going to speak about the really simple, along the lines of personhood topic of what is violence? Mm. Um, super thinking, easy. I know, easy. super easy, right? <laughs> okay, let me put this in perspective. I taught a unit on violence okay. some time ago. And in that discussion, I tried to get the students to think about ways in which violence could, like, how do we broaden our conceptualization of what was violence? And every, right. every tutorial, I would ask them a question that really annoyed them at the end, which is, so what do you guys think violence is? And they're always like, there is no answer, etc. But in some ways, I think they're kind of right. I don't know what the answer to this question is. What is violence for me is such a kind of a vague and imprecise concept. And I'm wondering if you guys have any more... This is a great way to flip that self other the other way. So I think that when it comes to violence, it's not about how the person talking about it perceives it. It's about how the person afflicted experiences it. That means anything can be violent, though. It can be. Yeah. So anything and everything can be violent. Potentially. Can. Doesn't mean absolutely everything is inherently, but it means that most things can be, yeah. Well, I'm glad we've wrapped that up, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking maybe violence is the dominance that you inflict on someone else rather than just like physical aggression. There's cases of emotional abuse and stuff like that. That's still violence. Like I see that as still violence. I don't know if there's a fancy anthropological name for it, but it's not physical in a way, but it's still damaging. Well, so there's ma- structural violence yeah, as well. Of course, yeah. Symbolic violence. Mm. Mm. So I guess maybe it's not so much physical and expanding beyond physical. I don't know. Maybe it's Can like I a... counter that? Yeah, please. So what if it's, again, not about what the person inflicting the violence is doing? What mm-hmm. if it's about how it's received? So maybe it's violence if the person receiving it is physically changed by it like because like with loneliness right like we know that things that are that have an impact on mental well-being also more often than not have an impact on physical well-being so if it's either having an impact on your physical or mental well-being and it's bad does that make it violence so even if the person who is inflicting the violence isn't using a weapon like a physical weapon even if they're not using their body to inflict the violence yeah. if they are using words or if a if a government is putting restrictions in place that are causing physical harm or physical change to somebody's body, even if that's through their mental well-being being damaged, is that violence? I think it's really tricky because, A, violence isn't always intentional on the part of the person inflicting it, mm-hmm. and, B, it's not always received as violent until after the fact. Right. And this is a big problem with any form of abuse, I suppose. Like yeah. when someone's in that interpersonal dynamic, it's difficult to recognise. Right. Mm. I mean, the, the problem for me comes with things like people who consent to being harmed. So mm. in like things like... fighting? Or fighting or BDSM or mm. things like that. Is that a violent relationship? Even though both people have consented to inflicting physical harm on each other, right? Is BDSM and fighting, fighting. and so on, consensual acts of violence. violence, in inverted commas, is that still violent? Maybe it's about boundaries. So if, if consent's been given and it remains within the boundaries that that consent has... Been given. Yeah, yeah. like what, what's been established, mm-hmm. then maybe it's not violence. But if a boundary gets crossed... 
then that becomes violence. Then it becomes violent. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. I'm sure we could chat about this forever. We really just scratched the surface. Uh, but we haven't even scratched the surface. We've, we've, we've nibbled. 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 Muddled. <laughs> but that is all we have time for. I want to thank Julia Brown. Thank you, Simon. Matthew Fong. Thank you. And Jodie Lee Trambar. Thank you. Today's episode was produced by all of us, The Familiar Strange. Our executive producers are Deanna Caddo and Matthew Fong. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. You can also find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet to us at tfstweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. And come on our Facebook group. Come, join us. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Maud Rowe and Martin Pierce. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange.